So um, ever since I was in high school, I have made it a goal to read a psalm and a proverb every day. Now, I have not read a psalm and a proverb every day since high school, but I had a, an elementary school teacher in fifth grade. Her name was Miss Bickford, who our family knows pretty well. And one day, I'm sure Miss Bickford has no idea that uh, she had this impact on my life and maybe other people's lives, but she was just talking to us about how she spent time with the Lord. And she mentioned that as she spent time with the Lord, that she would have this pattern of reading a proverb every day, which is simple enough because there's 31 of them, so you just correspond to the day of the month. And then she would read a psalm every day, and there's a pretty easy way of calcula calculating that as well. There's 150 psalms. And, uh, and so basically, you can read, uh, starting on January 1st, you start in Psalm 1, and then if you're on February the 3rd, for example, you're on about Psalm 33. And so when you kind of lose your place, you can just kind of go back and guesstimate where you're at in the process. And it's a way, uh, when you kind of don't know where you should be in God's Word and you've kind of lost track, it's an easy way to read a psalm and a proverb every day. Well, as I was preparing the sermon on February the 3rd or so, uh, when I got started, uh, I was in Psalm 33, and I love this psalm, and it really helped me as I began to prepare this sermon. It talks about the power of God's Word, the power of God's Word. In Psalm 33, 6 through 9, it says, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his, his mouth all their host." So by the word of the Lord, how did God create the world? How did he create the universe? He spoke and it came to be. This is the power of God's word. Then later on in that same psalm, in verse 18, it says, Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield, for our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. So God doesn't just create the world through his speech. He also renews the world through his speech. He also renews you and me through his words as we read his words and as we spiritually uh, commune in our souls with him. His speech changes our lives. If you make it your pattern on a regular basis, maybe even daily, to spend time with the Lord, his word transforms your life. It forms a framework or a structure upon which everything else is built upon. So for us now, we have God's word. We have Christ who's already come, the revealed word of God. But at this time, in Elisha's time, Elisha represented the word of God, the speech of God in this generation. Before him, it was Elijah, and now it's Elisha, and the transition has just happened. And so we're going to see how God confirms to other people around him, around Elisha and his ministry, that Elisha is the prophet now, that Elisha has the word of God, that indeed the word of God has come through Elisha now into this generation. Today we're going to, we already heard it read, but we're going to get into this story of the healing of the waters of Jericho. And what we're going to learn here is this, that God will heal anyone who will turn to him from what's in the past, who will drink in the healing waters of salvation, and then receive the new life that comes only through Jesus. So we have to turn from what's in the past, we have to drink in Jesus Christ as the living water, and then we have to receive that life 
that comes through him. So first of all, turning from what's in the past, and we have this in verse 15 and 18, and then also actually the subsequent text, which was not read, we'll get into that a little bit as well. But to understand the importance of what is happening in Jericho, we need to get down into a street-level view of what life had been like in Jericho historically. And so we're going to go back and look at right now we have Jericho, which has cursed waters. These waters are not producing life. But why is that the case? Why is that the case in Jericho? Well, the first time Jericho is mentioned in the Bible is in Joshua chapter 2. Jericho is famous It's this walled city. It's the stronghold of the Canaanites. And God sends spies into the land, if you recall. And those spies are looking at the city, trying to get intel on what's going on so they can go back and report it to Joshua. In the process, Rahab, the prostitute, hides the spies. And because she hides the spies, the spies promise her that if she will hang a scarlet cord out of her window down the wall of the city, then God is going to spare her. So even in the midst of this judgment that is going to come on Jericho, there are still signs of God's grace, and actually Rahab does do that. She does. Uh, somehow they, they save her from that, that place, and she goes, and she becomes a part of the people of God, and it's incredible that she became the mother of Boaz, who marries Ruth, which means Ruth is actually she becomes the great-grandmother of King David. So that means that Rahab, the Canaanite prostitute, is in the line of Christ. So not only does God redeem and save from situations that are cursed like this that Jericho is experiencing, God actually brings her all the way in to become part of the bloodline of Jesus Christ. There are strong movements of his grace But in Joshua chapter 3, Israel, the whole nation, crosses the Jordan. They go, and famously, for seven days, they march around the city. The last day, they march around seven times. They blow their trumpets and and break their glass and all this this stuff, and miraculously, God causes the, the walls to fall down in Jericho. Now, if you're in Jericho, before the walls fall down, and you're looking at this spectacle happening outside... I'm sure you think it's absolutely hilarious and ridiculous. I mean, I'm sure the popcorn and the beer was flowing. These, these people are like, these people have lost their minds. How is this going to, to, go, to help you know, break our fortified city? But actually, God does that. God reveals that his word, once God decrees something, it is going to happen. And so the city falls. And then later in Joshua 6, chapter, uh, chapter 6, verse 26, Joshua, after the walls fall down, he makes an oath that is really key for us to understand our passage today. He says, Cursed before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds the city of Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundation, and at the cost of his youngest son shall he set up its gates. But what happens many, many years later, under the reign of King Ahab, who we've talked about a lot in this series, came a man named Hiel of Bethel. Bethel was a was like Raleigh is to Durham, all right? It's a sister city. Hill was from Bethel. Um, Hill, growing up 17 miles from where Jericho used to be, saw Jericho and saw this land where Jericho was. And this land of Jericho is, it should be, uh, just absolutely verdant, just producing the greatest amount of fruit and crops because of where it's situated. It's situated along the Jordan River. There's a, it's situated up against a canyon, 
Rivers flow over those canyon walls into Jericho. It is a perfect place to build a city. And so Hiel of Bethel, he's looking at this place, location, location, location. He doesn't care about God's word. He doesn't care about what happened many years ago, what God said. And so he rebuilds the city. And we read about that later in uh, 1 Kings 16, where once he rebuilds the city, what happens? His children, his firstborn and his youngest, both die in the process of building this city. So this city still has a curse that God has placed upon it. Still, if you rebuild the city, it is, even though it looks beautiful on the outside, it looks like it should be a place where life can be found. It is actually dead on the inside. What should be producing life, all of these rivers right against the Jordan River, what's beautiful situationally on the outside is actually dead. We, we read in verse 21 that death and miscarriage were coming from there because of waterborne disease. This is something like what we're seeing in Ohio with the contamination of the rivers and all of these fish that have died and people that are fearing for their lives. This is something like the situation that had been going on in Jericho for years, except it was more subtle than that. People moved there. They moved their whole families there, maybe from Bethel, thinking this is the new, this is the new suburb. This is the new outgrowth of our city. Let's go to this beautiful place together. And once they get there, they find that there is actually death in the water. There's actually death instead of life. Imagine being a resident in Jericho at this time. You don't understand what is happening. There are miscarriages. Uh, There are people dying. The land is not producing the fruit that it should. And so we think about that situation for ourselves today. Then we fast forward to the ending of this story. This is a very weird ending. You may have never heard it preached on before. Um, But it's the story of where Elisha then leaves after he cures the water. We'll get back to the water in just a minute. After he cures the water and heals the water, he moves on toward Bethel, where Heel is from. All right, Bethel is a city that is famous for its godlessness. It's a place that never removed the high places to Baal. Idolatry and just a total disregard for the word of God was the reputation of Bethel. And so as Elisha starts moving toward Bethel... He's confronted by these youths. It says small boys, but actually if you get into it in the Hebrew, it can also mean adolescent youths. And there are 42 of them. And this is kind of a funny story. I remember uh, reading this growing up. And, and so they come out to him and they say, go on up, you bald head. Go on up, you bald head. Now this story, as I've gotten older, means a lot more to me because I, uh, I, can, I can relate to Elijah. So apparently Elijah was a really hairy guy. There's some texts that show us that. Elisha, not so much. He was losing his hair. And so they were mocking him uh, for losing his hair. And some of us can relate to that. I was actually at a Duke basketball game, the best tickets I've ever had in Cameron Indoor Stadium. I was sitting right there at midcourt, and I'm sitting next to a guy who in one of the timeout breaks says, hey, you might be interested. I'm actually the president of the hair club for men. And uh, I thought I'd just give you my card. And I was like, seriously, man? Come on, man. He, he really was, you know, not just the president, but also a client of Hair Club for Men. But that's an old commercial. You might remember it. But anyway, so Elisha is being ridiculed for his baldness. But there's, there's more going on than that. What's going on here? 
Elisha represents, he's a prophet, he's the prophet of God. He represents God's speech into this generation. And here you have the, the youth movement of Bethel coming out and ridiculing him. There's 42 of them. They may have had ill intent. Who knows what was going on, but it's 42 on one. He's an older guy. His chances are not good if things get dangerous. And so he actually calls out bears from the woods who come and take care of these 42 youths from Bethel. It's a really strange story. I'll give it to you. But what's going on here? Bethel is a city that mocks God. So what do you have? You have people in Jericho who have just had their waters healed. We're going to talk about more about how that happened in a minute. But their waters have just been healed. And now you have the neighboring city where most of these people have come from. And the youths of that city are mocking God's word. They're mocking God's prophet. They're actually threatening, potentially, to, to kill or, or hurt God's prophet. And so what you have here is whenever the gospel is present, whenever you have an opportunity to turn to life, you have people who are going to mock God's word. Always. It's always happening at the same time. Whenever the gospel is there, it's an opportunity for your life to change. You always have people, neighbors, who are saying, how could you possibly believe that God could produce life in this situation? To make things even more complicated for the preaching of God's word, you then have this story of the prophets. You have 50 prophets of all people who should be the ones who believe God's word. You know, these are like the church leaders of the day. Even they are not believing that Elisha, they're not, they're not quick to believe that Elisha is the new prophet of God. Even they are questioning God's word in this new movement of what God is doing. And so you have even church leaders, and we can relate to this in our day, like we want to follow God, but sometimes it's our church leaders who have said, you know what, we can't really peg our hopes on God's word. We can't really believe God's word. So let's believe a little bit of it or some of it, but really let's follow this new idea that's out there. Some new book I read and picked up in Barnes and Noble. You know, let's do that because this is too hard to believe that salvation's found in Jesus Christ who died and was raised and who's going to return again. That's not really it. And so you have even the prophets are not following God's word. So what we have here is we have to learn how to turn from our past. In Jericho, they had this past that was cursed. There, there was, they sought life situationally on the outside that was beautiful, but on the inside, they didn't have life. In Bethel, they had grown up in a culture that mocked God. Every time someone turned to God, there was mockery. They're like, I can't believe you're following God. And then you have the situation of even in the religious community, the leaders of the church are not following God after God. And so we have to turn. What do, you, what do we need to do? We need to, tune, sometimes you have to tune out. You have to turn from your past and you have to tune out all of those other voices. Those voices of your past that say, there's no life in Jesus. Keep on looking for life situationally on the outside. Don't worry about that internal frustration and brokenness that you experience. Keep on looking for life on the outside. That's really the gospel of carry, you know, is it not? Like, move here because it's beautiful, it's inspiring to live in such a beautiful place when there's death on the inside. I remember I was walking through a community 
Uh, sometimes I, I do prayer walks through different neighborhoods, and I was walking through this particular neighborhood in Cary that is filled with really massive, beautiful homes. And I was walking down the street one day, and there's this one particular home that I, I've always thought is one of the most beautiful homes in Cary. And I kind of admire it when I walk by, and I'm like, wow, that is an impressive place. And one day when I was walking by, one of the sons in that family ran out the front door and was screaming at his mom, and the mom ran out pleading with him, and they, they had an argument right with me standing there in the front yard with each other about who knows what they were arguing about, but it just showed me that behind the beautiful facade of wherever you live, whatever you try to create for yourself, there is always brokenness. It doesn't matter how beautiful your home is or how beautiful you try to make it, there's always brokenness. We have to turn from that brokenness. And when you turn from that brokenness to Christ, you're always going to have people who say, really, you're going to follow Christ? There's life in Christ? That's ridiculous. There's always going to be people, when you're turning, that question it and say, I can't believe you think there's life in Jesus. And then even sometimes in the midst of that, you're going to have church leaders who, who say, you know what, that's great, the Bible's great, God's word is great, but actually there's all this other really interesting stuff out here that you should consider too when life is found in God's word. We have to turn from all that. We have to turn from it. We have to tune out all of those voices and we have to tune into and turn to the voice and the presence of the one. You have to tune out the voices of the crowd and listen to the voice of the one. So then we get to the second point, drinking in the life-giving waters of the gospel. If you're in Jericho, how much are those mockers down the street, your neighbors who are mocking you, how much have they helped you historically? Not at all. That's the interesting thing is, is when you're broken and you start to turn to Jesus, your neighbors who are broken too, who don't have answers, you don't have answers on your own. None of you have answers. All of you are broken. And yet when you turn to Christ, they can assure you of one thing, that there's no life to be found in Christ. They can assure you of that. They, they themselves have not found life but they can assure you that finding life in Christ is ridiculous. We have, to we have to tune that out and we have to continue pressing toward the Lord because what has Jesus done? Who can reverse the curses of Jericho and Bethel? Who can reverse the curses of Kerry and Raleigh and Durham? Who can reverse the curses of your life and my life? There's only one who can reverse that curse, and that is Jesus Christ. Romans 8.31, who shall rescue us from this body of death? Thanks be to God. So God created that plain in Jericho by the Jordan River, and sin had brought a curse on that place. And that, that curse on Jericho is really a representation of the curse that exists on the world. You know, the whole world is not as it should be. God created this world by his speech, and then we turned away from God. And so God cursed the world. And this is the situation that the Trinity found themselves in. Who will rescue the people of God from this body of death? Who will rescue us from the current brokenness of our world? And can you imagine that meeting in the situation room of heaven where the Trinity starts talking together and the Father says to the Son, you know there's only one way that this can happen. There's only one way to reverse the curse. 
me saying, me merely saying something verbally is not going to do it anymore. That's not going to work. And it's not going to work for the people out there just to say that they're sorry. That's not going to work. What's going to have to happen is that the Son of God, Jesus, my Son, you're going to have to go. Here's how it's going to happen. You're going to become a human embryo. There's this virgin named Mary. You're going to have to go inside of her womb. You're going to have to become truly man and remain truly God. And you're going to have to grow up in this world. 2,000 years ago, under Roman influence, as a Jew, you're going to have to grow up. And it's really important, Jesus, you're going to have to live a perfect life. You're going to have to live perfectly in all that you go through in life, you're going to have to live perfectly. You can't ever sin, not even once. You're going to have to grow up. You can't sin. And then this is why, because you're going to have to die as a perfect sacrifice, a sin-bearing sacrifice. You're going to have to receive all of the curses of sin onto you in your body on the cross. You're going to have to be cursed, Jesus. All of the curses that should fall on, on my people and all who will turn to me, all these curses... The sins of the world, you're going to have to receive all the curses. And that's the only way, the only way, Jesus, is if you become the reverser of the curse. If you become the sin bearer, it's the only way. And Jesus says yes to that incredibly awful and difficult mission. And even as Christ is hanging on the cross, do you realize what happens as Jesus is hanging on the cross? That even as Christ is doing the work of redemption, the most important curse-reversing action ever done in the world, he is being mocked. He is being mocked. This one believes that he is the king of the Jews. He's delusional. The Romans mocked him. One of the thieves mocked him. The crowd mocked him. Mockery always coexists beside the faithful. Always. Even in at the crucifixion, even at that scene, there's always mockery when good is happening, when God is doing the greatest work in the world. Christ is being mocked. So Jesus lifts the curse through his own work. You know, I think about Christ being mocked on the cross. It makes me, when I read that part of the story, it makes me really mad. It really ticks me off when I think about my Lord dying and being mocked as he is bearing the weight of the curses of sin. But Jesus, what he says on the cross is, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Maybe that's the greatest expression of love in the world that we've ever seen. You know, Elisha, when he was threatened by these 42 adolescent boys, uh, called on bears to come and to show justice to them is a weird story, I'm not going to lie. <laughs> but Jesus calls down those curses on himself. Do you realize that? He had every right on the cross to say, you know what, no, I'm not going to receive this curse. I don't deserve it. I'm going to call these curses down on everybody else. And that would have been right. But no, what he did is he persevered and he called down those curses on himself so that anyone who looks to him by faith will have the curse of sin removed from their life. The curse of sin lifted from their life, broken. Jesus paid it all on the cross so that we could have life in his name. Now back to 2 Kings 2, there is death in the water in Jericho. 
So what is essential to life, what should have been good and pure, is now cursed. But what happens is Elisha comes and he says, give me a new bowl with salt in it. The new bowl represents something new that God is doing, a new dispensation of his grace. And then the salt, he goes to the spring, he sprinkles salt in the water, and miraculously, it is absolutely a miracle that the waters are purified. Because why is it a miracle? I mean, salt, obviously... Uh, the salt is not uh, what heals the water. Uh, what heals the water is a miraculous display of the Lord through the salt. What can we learn from this? You know, Jesus, it says in Isaiah 53, 2, he had no form or majesty that we would be attracted to him. There was nothing externally about Jesus that was, that was particularly amazing. In fact, some people, when he died on the cross, it said they were, they were so appalled at, at what they saw that they ran. So appalled by Jesus' external appearance. But internally, who was Jesus? He was the life giver. He was the life bringer. He was the curse reverser. See, stories in the Old Testament of miracle are really cool. But if they don't relate to Jesus in any way, that's all they are. They're just really cool. But stories that relate to Jesus and teach us about Jesus can show us something about Christ that is beautiful, that we can hold on to. And what we learn here is that Jesus is the living water. He is the original salt of the earth. He's the original. It goes back to him. We are called in Matthew 5 to be the salt of the earth. Salt is really um, not anything in particularly uh, amazing, extraordinary. It's very normal super average. But when it's infused with the miracle of God, the life-giving work of God, then, in that case, we can do something through the power of God that, that redeems the world through Christ. Anyone who receives the living water of Christ can find new life and healing and wholeness in his water. So finally, we're going to look at new life in Jericho in creation and for all who take in the water of Christ. Jericho creation in the water of Christ. So let's talk about living water in Jesus' first coming. Jesus said in John chapter 7, verses 37 and 38, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. So Jesus is saying, I am the fulfillment of 2 Kings 2. Not just for Jericho, but for anyone who believes. Then he tells, before that, actually he tells the Samaritan woman in John 4, 10 through 15, he says, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Everyone who drinks from this water, this well here, he's saying, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water that I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in them a spring of water for eternal life. So he's telling the Samaritan woman, you've been looking for life everywhere. But what you've been looking for is in me. He said, I am the living water. Then he goes on and he tells a story later in his ministry of the parable of the good Samaritan. Why do I tell this story? Where Jesus intentionally sets this story where? On the Jericho Road, on the road between Jerusalem and Jericho. He could have picked anywhere, but he didn't. He picked Jericho. And he told this story about the kind of healing he would bring to people who turned to him. 
He said one time there was a man who, who was on the road and a band of robbers came, and maybe like Elisha in his day, but these guys actually got to him and they attacked him and left him for dead on the side of the road. Two religious men walked by and what they saw was not something they wanted to have anything to do with because it would have made them unclean to touch them, but not the Samaritan. The Samaritan comes, picks up the man on the side of the road, on the Jericho road, takes him to an inn and does everything so that he can be healed. This good Samaritan is Jesus Christ. He is describing his own ministry. This is the ministry of living water. Jesus takes broken people on the side of the road, gives them real living water to drink, curse-reversing life to, to drink in spiritually so that they will live. Two more stories from Jericho in Jesus' ministry. Real stories. This is not, these are not parables. The first is about Zacchaeus, and the second is Bartimaeus. These men both lived in the city of Jericho. You may know their stories. They lived on the same streets. Zacchaeus owned the streets, and Bartimaeus lived on the streets. Zacchaeus was a wealthy man. He was a wee little man, as we know, a short, wealthy man, and he made his money by extorting people. He was guilty of white-collar crime of the greatest, highest level, and he had become very, very wealthy at it. This is the rich businessman that's gotten there not uh, honestly but dishonestly. And Jesus comes in, and Zacchaeus climbs up in a tree and has this opportunity to see Jesus. Jesus sees him and says, I'm going to go eat at your house today. And Jesus interacts with this man guilty of white-collar crime and totally reverses the curse in his life so that Zacchaeus then repents and gives away four times more than he should have, he needed to. But as an expression of his gratitude for the gospel, this white-collar man repents. And then later on, Jesus gets to Bartimaeus as he's leaving Jericho on the way to Jerusalem for Holy Week. A blind man runs up to him, a man who lived on the streets. He hears that Jesus has been, has been coming to town. He's leaving town he realizes this is the opportunity right there on the streets of Jericho to be healed. And so he runs out into the road. He runs out to where Jesus is. And he says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Somehow the blind man understood the gospel. He understood who Jesus was. He understood he was the son of David, the great-grandson of Ruth, the great-great-grandson of Rahab. He understood that. He understood that this man was the one. He represented the opportunity for him to be healed. This was the living water that had come to him, and he was not going to miss his chance. So he runs out, and Jesus famously heals his eyes and heals his life. This no-collar, on-the-streets brother also realizes that Jesus is the living water for him. Jesus came to Jericho in his real ministry. This is the same city, the same city where the waters have been healed. Jesus makes sure he goes there to show that now life is coming, has come. Spiritual life has come to Jericho. That's living water in Jesus' first coming. In his second coming, there's also this picture of living water in Revelation 22, 1 through 3. This is the completion of, of Jesus' renewing work, the future vision. I love that we spent time on that this morning. Thank you, Joe. Jesus says, 
or um, it says in Revelation 22, 1 through 3, Then the angel showed me the, rev- the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. This is the the final act. This is what we look forward to. That one day, as Clay also prayed about, one day all things will be made new. The rivers will no longer be cursed. The river of life will flow from the center of Jerusalem into the world. The curse will be lifted through Christ fully and finally. Right now we live in this in-between time. We live in between the first coming where Christ has come He's died and been raised, and he offers new life. In order to have the new life pictured for us in the future, sorry, in order for us to have the new life pictured for us in the future, you must hold on to Christ. You must believe in Christ in the present. If you want Revelation 22 to be your life and your story, you must believe in Christ now. Those who, who believe in Christ now are those who get to participate in, and enjoy the renewal of all things and the full lifting of the curse that will happen in Revelation. Like the people of Jericho had to drink that new living water, like the Samaritan woman had to drink Christ in spiritually, like Zacchaeus and Bartimaeus had to believe in Jesus Christ, you have to believe in Jesus Christ. This is the only way. Jesus Christ is the only one who lifts the curse for us. You have to tune out your past as an identity, You have to tune out your culture that says all you need is a good external situation. You don't need to worry about your internal situation. You have to tune out the voices in your life that mock Christ and say there's no life to be found there. You have to tune out all the leaders that you find out there who are trying to distance themselves from God's word, distance themselves from the atonement, distance themselves from the resurrection, And you have to say, no, I believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the living water. He is. And I'm going to hold on to him. I'm going to believe that my sins are forgiven through Jesus Christ. I'm going to shape my life around the word of God. I'm going to follow him. I'm going to try to be, I'm going to do everything I can to endeavor to be faithful in this faithless age because I believe in Jesus Christ. That's the message for us today. There is hope for us in Christ. He is the only one who lifts the curse. So turn to him, believe in him, rest in him, drink in the gospel of grace that is for you. It's for you, it's for the Samaritan woman, Zacchaeus, Bartimaeus, anyone who turns to Christ. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that we would have the urgency of Zacchaeus and Bartimaeus. Lord, when you're present, you desire to do a work, a work of grace. You are the living water. And Lord, you are passing us by this morning, and I pray that we would not allow you to pass by without climbing up in our trees or running out into our streets and saying, God, do not pass me by. I need your grace today. Lord, would we have a sense, would we have a sense of urgency in our spiritual lives, realizing that there's only life in you. There is no life in this world. 
There's no life in Carrie outside of you. There's no life in the triangle outside of you. You are the way, the truth, and the life. Lord, would we cling to you this morning? Lord, we thank you for your grace. The fact is that Elisha's first miracle is a miracle that signifies grace that has come to a city, that heals a city. Would you heal us today through your living water? We pray in Jesus' name.